Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the, one of the editors of We Are Strong, Wartime Origins and the Future United Nations. I'll be talking with Tom Weiss, who's one of the editors, along with Dan Plesch. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Tom. Welcome back to the podcast. As I mentioned, I have the real pleasure to talk to Thomas Weiss, who's one of the editors of We Are Strong, Wartime Origins and the Future United Nations, published by Routledge Press. Tom, how are you doing today? Pretty well, thanks, Heath. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on. Before we get to the book, why don't you tell those that don't know who you are, I know who you are, um, but but tell us a little bit about yourself and then also your co-editor, Dan Plesch. Well, um, I've been at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York uh, teaching international relations for the last 17 years, and for 16 of those, I directed the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. Uh, during that time, um, I drew upon my previous existence in life as an international official. I lived and worked in Geneva, but I've always been interested uh, in the behavior and misbehavior of international institutions, more specifically the United Nations. And my current uh, interest focus on both my efforts as a back-of-the-envelope historian, looking back at World War II and earlier uh, the uh, intellectual history of the United Nations, and also looking at the future of shape of the so-called UN system. Dan uh, is the director of the uh, Center for International Studies and Diplomacy uh, at SOAS at the University of London, uh, he's more properly a historian uh, and has written uh, actually on the period uh, treated by this book from 1942 to 1945, the origins during World War II of this beast that we now call the United Nations. Yeah, one of the nice things about the podcast is that the uh, historians get to play political scientists and the political scientists get to play sociologists and there's the type of intermingling that, that we all talk about and, and uh, I think this book shows some of that interdisciplinary flair to the, the, the study of the UN. Um, before we get to what this book is about, this book fits into a series. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the larger series, how long it's been published and where, where this volume fits into the series. Well, that's kind. Um, little station identification never hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rorden Wilkinson, who is now at uh, the University of Sussex as the chair of the International Relations Department there, and I have edited this series called Global Institutions since 2005. And actually next week at the International Studies Association's annual meeting, there will be a reception to uh, celebrate the 100th volume in the series. The series has three tracks, really. A, what we see is a short and authoritative treatment by experts of 
particular institutions, the Security Council, the General Assembly, the OECD, uh, the African Union, uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, there is a forthcoming um, stream, which will be on theory, uh, everything you wanted uh, to know and were afraid to ask about constructivism or realism will be brought to you in short form, around forty or 50,000 words by people who know those topics inside out. And the final uh, stream, if you will, is the red stream in which this book appears, which are longer, usually 75 to 80,000 words, uh, treatments of specialized research topics. Some of these are single authored. Some of them are edited, uh, like the one that we're discussing today. It's, um, and I, I have uh, one of my former colleagues, Martin Edwards. I hope a listener uh, is, is somebody who's, who's written this series and just I haven't, I haven't uh, seen, seen others, but they, they do look interesting in terms of their topics. Well, it's like also, if I'm, I may, one thing I probably Please. should say is that <laughs> um, when I talk with my own mentor, who's now 91 years old, uh, he sort of is envious, I, I, I in scare quotes, he's not really envious, but he says it's really interesting to see that in the year uh, 2005 when the series started and even today, uh, that publishers are actually interested in uh, intergovernmental and non-governmental and every other kind of institution, uh, that there is a market for such books, as I mentioned, a hundred of them today, um, that there was not necessarily for a very long period of time. Immediately after the Second World War, uh, lots of institutions grew up. There was a real, um, you know, there were six people at Columbia teaching on the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And then in the 60s and 70s, the whole notion of institutions, qua institutions, actually kind of disappeared as uh, these institutions fell into, I'm not going to say disarray or disrepair, but states moved in other directions and analysts also moved in the direction of uh, softer stuff um, and in the 1990s, global governance. But we are, I think we are now realizing that actually uh, well-structured, effective, and that's not always the case, things that you can see and feel and touch and go to organizations um, are very a necessary part of global governance, not the only part, but a big part. Yeah, and you write in the introduction, you, you two write the introduction to the, to the book. You write, in, and let me quote, today a key question that ought to be in boldface type on the agenda of global, global governance is, do we need another cataclysm to rekindle the imagination and energy and cooperation that was in the air in the 1940s, or are we smart enough to adapt in anticipation? Would you expand a little bit on this statement for us? It, it seems to really strike the, the, the heart of, of, of what many in the, in, the, in the book are writing about. Well, um, let me start by saying that I hope the answer <laughs> to that question is the second half of the book. Right. That maybe we'll wake up. Although, as I look around and uh, sort of examine uh, what's happening with climate change or sort of the, the half-hearted efforts at Ebola uh, or nuclear proliferation or terrorism or international finance. Uh, 
there's not a whole lot of evidence that uh, we're smart enough. I keep hoping, and that's the business that you and I are in, that maybe uh, things like knowledge, facts, and history may help take the necessary steps. But what fascinated us about this period, the last great world conflict, uh, was the fact that during this period, 1942 to 1945, the term United Nations, uh, which um, Roosevelt came up with and uh, gave to Churchill, who was taking a bath. Uh, <laughs> I mm-hmm. sort of quite imagine this scene, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the United Nations was an alliance of you know 44 countries at the outset that was necessary to defeat fascism. But at the same time, it was also a commitment to multilateral cooperation as a kind of a standard bill of fare, as a way of operating. And it also was part of a vision about post-war peace and prosperity. All of that grew from the second war uh, within a generation. Second war in 20 years, second war to end all wars. Uh, And as a result, during this period, uh, and the results, I think people don't always recall that the the victory of the Allies was not a done deal. It was hardly a foregone conclusion. So that in the midst of this conflagration uh, with London under siege, with the United States scrambling to replace all the airplanes that had been uh, destroyed at Pearl Harbor, that in that in the midst of this uh, tumult and real crisis in um, the future existence of the West as we know it, that at the same time there were a huge number of people who spent a lot of time and energy, including Roosevelt and Churchill, but other world leaders as well, looking at what had happened to the predecessor, the League of Nations, which had, um, for a whole variety of reasons, including the absence of the United States and Germany and Russia, uh, led to the Second World War. The absence of institutions to, to deal with trade and finance that led to the Great Depression, etc., So that part of what was going on during this period was not just increasing the capacity of industry to produce airplanes and tanks and armaments of various sorts, but it also was a devotion to thinking about what had worked, what had worked less well uh, during uh, the, the previous system. So while everyone agreed that the League had failed, the answer was not to chuck this into the dustbin of history, but to build upon it and do something better the next time. And under the pressure of really World War II and our backs against the wall, or certainly uh, Britain's uh, back was against the wall, and lots of uh, Europe, the United States, not quite, uh, that a significant amount of resources, intellectual and some financial ones, were devoted to thinking and thinking big about the post-war era and the peace and prosperity that everyone hoped would follow. Yeah, I was particularly drawn uh, to chapter three of the book. And, and uh, the, the chapter is about uh, in the midst of World War II, you know, in sort of the, in the, in the darkest days, 
that planners conceived of an educational institution as critical for future world peace. Mm-hmm. Um, would you talk a little bit, you sort of just alluded to some of this, but would you talk a, to us a little bit about that chapter and the creation of, of what later became UNESCO? Yeah, well, it, interestingly enough, one could have uh, imagined that the kind of education that might have been replicated by the victors, who were not yet victors, but the allies, uh, would have been a um, kind of a, a Nazi education on steroids or something, mm-hmm. that, it, that uh, in fact uh, we ought to militarize education and teach everyone to be a nationalist in order to face the, the, uh, the extraordinary threat that was Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But that was not the notion uh, that was discussed by the Allied Ministers of Education. Uh, their focus was instead on uh, the basis uh, for, let's use the word peace, uh, was in fact uh, in the minds of men, and now we'd say men and women, uh, and that educational processes had to uh, reflect the need for the kinds of things that we that roll off our tongue, uh, tolerance and, and openness and uh, willingness to, to think about uh, how differences didn't need to become chasms uh, between and among peoples. So that, as I say, during London, under siege, you have several meetings of the Allied Ministers of Education talking about what needed to come next. What kinds of education, uh, what kinds of restoration of archives, and what kinds of books, and et cetera, et cetera, would need to be available at the end of the conflict? And so that's a kind of a reflection of a vision, and I think it's, one ought to not be afraid of the word, of a vision uh, about the post-war uh, world. Now, obviously, that vision... Uh, came apart very quickly. And the reason that we asked the question about world war, another world war, or whether we can learn lessons, is that immediately, uh, and almost uh, probably even before the end of the war in uh, August of 45, um, these visions were already receding because of the renewed hostility between East and West, the Soviet Union and the United States, so that these these visions about a post-world war, about what was necessary, about how to take a step beyond what had happened in 1918, suddenly were set aside in a very big hurry, including education and war crimes and refugees and the entire uh, works that we looked at in this book. So the, the reason that... Um, we started this entire project and that the Carnegie Corporation uh, financed was why is it under these circumstances, you know, what are the conditions under which states occasionally move out of their standard operating procedures of um, only me first, only my population first, and uh, narrowly defined national interests. And it obviously under the pressure of war, uh, these kinds of experiments and this kind of thinking uh, 
moves ahead. Uh, I think it's <laughs> the best example, uh, if we're thinking about um, international finance. Uh, at the meeting in Bretton Woods, um, arguably the world's the best economist in the 20th century, uh, uh, John Boehner might not agree, but you know John Maynard Keynes uh, was well respected everywhere. And when he arrived at um, Bretton Woods, his notion about a stabilization fund, it was not yet called the International Monetary Fund, but he thought that there should be international resources, we now call them special drawing rights, but international resources set aside that would be the equivalent of 50% of the world's imports. Harry Dexter White, the American head of delegation, said, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is wild. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't do anything like that. He said, how about 15%? Well, the all-powerful uh, International Monetary Fund, which uh, comes under criticism for you know, throwing its weight around, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has never had more than about a percent and a half under its authority. So here, if you want to compare the vision, the sort of thinking during the war about what kinds of institutions would be adequate to the task with the sort of mice that have been hatched subsequently, you see what happens, I think, under the pressure of war and why we ask that question, not totally rhetorically, is is this what's necessary to get states to do something about climate change? Is this what's necessary to stop pandemics or proliferation? Uh, We hope not, but the common currency of um, reform, international reform, is usually cataclysms. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about reform. Um, You write in the book that uh, present policy needs to be better informed by history, much of the history that you've been um, describing uh, so far. So how is the UN learning from its past? Um, the chapter by Burley and Brown talks about this uh, status of system-wide reform. Um, where do we stand today on the, on the future of the UN? Are there, UN, are, are there any um, uh, particular proposals out there that um, do justice to the, 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 the detailed history um, that you, in many ways, are calling upon. When, when can we look to for the, um, the 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 overhaul that some people have called for? Perhaps perhaps an overhaul isn't necessary. But wh- where do we stand on reform? No, I think that um, uh, I would use the word transformation, uh, not even change uh, or reform of the system is is urgently required, but is nowhere. And I mean nowhere on the uh, agenda of states and certainly nowhere on the agenda of the secretary general or any senior officials or heads of other uh, specialized agencies. Um, You know, business as usual and inertia are the usual explanations for um, how we proceed Uh, in this other project that I mentioned briefly, the future United Nations Development System, 
um, we've been looking at the history of reform. And last, um, no, two months ago in December, we bring out a monthly publication called Briefing on a, on a specific topic. And the one in December was written by uh, Margaret Joan Asti, Dame Margaret, uh, who's uh, in her 90s, but who uh, wrote about 45 years of unsuccessful efforts to change. We're not talking about the Security Council. She wrote only about the United Nations development system, this sort of totally atomized, totally decentralized set of institutions, at least 30, maybe 70, depending on which ones and which funds and programs you throw into it, um, all of which are um, part of the so-called system, but none of which really works together. They all have separate budgets. They all have separate cultures. They all go their own ways. They all compete for resources. And rather than pulling together, they compete. Uh, she and uh, Sir Robert Jackson wrote a report in 1969 uh, that, frankly, looks very sensible today and <laughs> which, on which no progress has been made in, in 45 years. So I dare say that um, if you were betting, uh, inertia is what explains what happens and what's happened in the United Nations in particular over the last 70 years, because this year we're um, celebrating may not be the right word. But anyway, we're, we are mm-hmm. we are in the midst of the 70th anniversary of the gathering in San Francisco to um, put together the system to come up with the United Nations Charter. And then the 70th anniversary uh, in October of the entry into force. Uh, And here we are um, with states quite happy, I think, to uh, let things slide. Uh, And that's why we keep going back to that question uh, that you started the interview off with. What actually is necessary to budge this monster which is controlled by states. You know, this is, it's not just the, the staff who work at the United Nations who are responsible for this, but it's mainly the member states who pay the bills or sometimes pay the bills uh, that are responsible here. So that's where we are. Right. So, so if we can't look forward to change the UN, what might we look forward to in this series? Let's, let's talk about something we may have a little more control over and that we can hedge our bets on. So um, uh, what's up next? Do you, do you have the next book that's going to come out? What, what can we look for uh, in, the, in the future from the series? Well, the, um, I, I, I suspect that much of the emphasis in, among analysts in, of international relations these days, um, and one of my uh, main gripes, shall we say, is the emphasis that is placed on everything except intergovernmental organizations. Uh, so what started in 1945 as the centerpiece, as the, as the backbone of um, post-war order, um, has now been relegated to the margins. 
because of their structures, because of the perceived ineffectiveness, and the list goes on. And now uh, we are all, and I put myself in this category as well, having established a journal called Global Governance, uh, interested in sort of describing the complex lattice work of other kinds of institutions, uh, non-governmental organizations, every element of civil society, all kinds of transnational corporations. The literature is filled with um, human rights activists crossing borders, uh, and the list goes on. And while I agree that this complex nature of contemporary international uh, society it consists of lots of things besides intergovernmental uh, organizations, I think it's also fair to say that if we're interested in um, halting, slowing down, uh, reversing climate change, or we're interested in halting mass atrocities in uh, the Sudan or the Congo, uh, or if we're interested in not repeating the 2008 financial meltdown, that frankly, uh, no group of deals cut by transnational corporations or Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are going to do the job. One mm -hmm. needs to get states to take seriously the commitments they've made and the commitments they have not yet made. And uh, if there are global problems, we need global solutions, not a, a set of, um, you know, occasional tactical short-term uh, responses instead of sustained and strategic and longer-run global perspectives and actions. And that's why um, it, it, it seems to me that while I'm happy with the energy, the resources, and the um, uh, well, the energy and resources that are made available by all kinds of non-state actors. At the same time, states are the ones who are ultimately the guarantors of order. They're the ones that sign contracts that are called, uh, you know, international conventions and treaties. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are going to enforce or not enforce human rights, not Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. And it seems to me that um, part of the um, proverbial baby has been tossed out here uh, in being excited about everything else. So in the series, uh, to come back to your question, you know, there are hosts of, of books on um, rating agencies, uh, uh, you know, Moody's and, and what have you. Uh, there are all kinds of actors related to the transnational uh, investments and, and finance. There are, there are, we've got a couple of books coming out on these bits and pieces that are important pieces in understanding the way the contemporary world functions. Uh, but my uh, own hobby horse these days is to uh, reemphasize the importance of universal global institutions as part and parcel of uh, a future order that will uh, keep uh, us and our children and grandchildren uh, thriving. This book uh, that we've been um, 
hearing some of the details about that he has co-edited with Dan Plesch is called We Are Strong, Wartime Origins in the Future United Nations, published by Routledge. Tom, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Heath. Anytime. Anytime.